Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. Okay. Our economist friend is back. He is our four-letter government economic specialist. He's also done some various things like organ wrestling, which we were talking about beforehand, but we got to get this to the serious business now. Uh, Stephen Popik, the artist formerly known as Moto Economist. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great on this Friday, Andrew. I hope you're doing well. Hanging in there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> let's just talk economics for a second. Let's do some big picture stuff. We know on paper the economy's in pretty decent shape, all things considered, the fundamentals of it. However, there's inflation going on. That's the core dynamic of communicating economics right now, right? It's like by the book, there's a lot of good stuff, but inflation's going on. Is that I know that's really, really simplified, but that's basically the nut of all the problems right now, right? I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, it, it, I've called this economy repeatedly weird. We had two quarters of negative GDP growth, by the way, followed by a third quarter, by, by the next quarter, that had really spectacular GDP growth. You know, um, we've had uh, employment gains continue, uh, despite lots of commentators out there thinking that we've had to have exhausted all the available labor supply. Turns out, nope, nowhere close to that. But, yeah, the elephant in the room has been and will continue to be 
this persistent inflation. And uh, you had him on, my friend Joey, you've had him on, Peloton. Um, you know, you know, he has produced a nice series of graphics that clearly shows that some of the drivers from the beginning of the year of inflation that we thought would be temporary, right, energy costs, um, et cetera, disruptions to supply chain are abating. So those drivers are were not persistent. They are coming down like a lot of us thought they would. But what has shifted now is that core inflation, things not subject to a lot of variability, um, has continued to uptick and remain persistently high. Um, and you can't just explain all of it by wage gains. Um, you know, and, and, and that is a pattern that seems likely to continue through the end of the year. Not that we'll see increases in the inflation rate, but that we'll continue to see elevated rates. Like it's, it's like you, you climbed up on top of the mountain and there's a plateau and you got to go a little bit before you can start going back down the mountain. But here's the problem is I don't think we understand the mountain. Like you said, this is weird and economic. Let's be fair. Economics is a hard thing to communicate in mass media. It just is because it's detailed. It's nuanced. There's a lot of layers to it. There's math. It's a little hard to. Yeah, the, the weird thing was when we when we had two quarters of negative GDP growth, we had still positive employment going up and up and up. And like just our last employment report that dropped this morning. Right. They they thought we were going to add about two hundred thirty thousand jobs to the economy. Um, we added two hundred sixty thousand. And you go into that data and you can clearly see, no, these are not part timers. These are not bad jobs. These are good quality jobs that we keep adding. But the inflation continues to eat away at household balance sheets. Now, I think I have an idea of what might be driving inflation and why we might see it start coming down. And I think we sort of missed this a little bit, but it's come around pretty, pretty clear. Um, We had an awful lot of stimulus money back in 2020 and 2021 in this country. We also had a lot of shutdown um, and people uh, reacting to uncertainty essentially stopped spending some money. So household balance sheets got a lot better on average. Essentially households flush with cash. So then when the economy is reopened in 2022 and we start seeing inflation running away, part of the story is there's just a lot more spending going on. There's more money out there in the system and things are getting bid up. If you look at figures that sort of detail how much, quote, excess savings we have, uh, above and beyond sort of what we would normally expect to see in household balance sheets, we can see that right now that excess savings, it's starting to be exhausted, but there's still some left. Like we're starting to see the excess savings come down. We're on the other side of that mountain, but we're not, we haven't fully exhausted those excess savings. I don't think inflation really is going to start seeing a, a, a dive down um, until those excess savings sort of get completely exhausted and we're back sort of where we thought we should be on par if it was 2019. Now, of course, the Fed's also trying to make that happen a little bit sooner by uh, raising uh, the Fed funds rate and trying to slow down the economy a little bit or yeah. a lot, honestly. Stephen Popic with us. Let's let's just go there, though. How much of this is just COVID being such a once-in-a-however-long-pick-your-time-frame event that just completely screwed up the economy? Because we don't really have a good metric for us purposely shutting our own economy down in large swaths. No, like, that I just mean, has never happened before. How much, and let's be honest here, 
a lot of people were calling for a downturn before COVID ever happened, and we had kind of artificially been inflating it, and nobody really wanted it to come down, and we can debate all those later. At some point, the economy was going to come back down a little bit because it had been doing well. And then we had COVID on top of it, and we kind of artificially shut a lot of things down because of COVID. We just don't have any metric for any of that. So are we just dealing with a lot of after effects that people don't fully understand? I mean, if you look at every developed country that has some comparability to the United States, they're also dealing with persistently high un, uh, high inflation. Now, unlike the United States, many of these countries still have a, a somewhat, uh, somewhat of an issue with unemployment. Um, and they're not seeing as much success in other avenues of the economy that the U.S. has had. So it seems like if you look at, uh, look at us compared to the developed world, our response has been pretty good. But this persistent inflation issue, it doesn't seem to be just a choice that we created by our own U.S. policy. It, it's definitely something that happened worldwide, which, as you said, leads to the idea that this was a COVID thing, right? Because that, that affected everyone. And, and you know, I, I take some solace on the fact that we seem to be doing a bit better than other countries when we when that are comparable. So, despite all of our issues and political challenges, we did something right. partners with us look is this num this thing where we just do job numbers i understand it has some is it just a political thing now because these numbers don't seem like you know well we had 261 instead of 325 or whatever the case may be we we've made a running joke out of the economic numbers or the unemployment numbers or the gdp unexpectedly every single time that is, is the media coverage of this just worthless now? Is it just a political and media buzzword well, thing without a whole lot of better? Because it doesn't seem like it's really moving the needle on any of this stuff. And people sure don't feel a difference in 75,000 difference in an unemployment report. Do we need to talk about this differently? Well, I mean, if you're one of those extra 30,000 people that got a job uh, from the last report that we didn't expect to get a job, uh, it probably matters a lot. But there are how many millions of people in this country? Most like most people are not going to notice those effects because they're they're not the ones that are experiencing the change, right? Um, so does it matter? Uh, it matters to uh, policymakers who are trying to figure out how to thread the needle. It matters to the Fed trying to figure out how they're going to do their basis point raises. It matters to businesses and business executives making plans about the future of the economy. Does it matter for our politics? Probably not. I mean, if you're going to, I know you might be having this uh, special on the election. The fact that we're right now even talking about the fact that it's equally likely there is a Republican tsunami or there is a Republican pond wave sort of shows like how people are set and how the economy is not going to really affect it because like, if this was a completely neutral election environment, we didn't have COVID and we had inflation about eight or 
you would think that the party in charge would get absolutely shellacked and run out of town. The fact that the, there's a possibility that they don't, it's actually kind of shocking. And that tells me that partisanship is really anchored now, that we are clearly in two camps. Yeah, we were talking about this when we did the election preview of like, look, people forget 2018, the House swing was 41 seats to the Democrats. That's about as big of a blue wave as you're ever going to get congressionally in modern right. times. Mm-hmm. It lasted basically one election, mm-hmm. and then they had erosion, and then they lost the House. So technically two, but really, they only got one election out of that whole big wave. The problem with waves is it goes in, it comes out, and the next wave comes, right? I think we do the same thing with the unemployment number. I think we do the same thing with, you know, because these are quarterly reports. Most of them are quarterly reports. There's some others. Yeah. You know, I get it. You go to the beach, you're bouncing the wave. You're just getting hit wave after wave after wave. You got to go get on the beach and realize you're in the ocean. Do we need to have a longer viewpoint on this stuff and just stop chasing the quarterly numbers because we're losing a little bit of perspective on these things? I get it politically, especially right now, because, you know, we just had a midterm election. I get why we do it, but it doesn't seem to be very healthy and it doesn't seem to be very informative. And I don't think it's really, you know, moving the ball forward in these tough economic times that we're having because we can't get a good perspective on it if we're just chasing these numbers. In normal times, we get really good estimates of quarterly quarterly, uh, unemployment, quarterly employment, because we don't see very large revisions uh, to those figures. And I think it's worth to dive in. When they release these job reports, you know, they're based on preliminary assessment of data and not all that data has come in. And so that's why you see revisions a month later. That's why you see revisions a quarter later. It's not that they did a bad job. It's that they you can only make an estimate based on the data that you get in, and sort of your under your your prediction about what what's missing is out there. A prediction has error, so you're going to have shifts. And so we we see that you know uh, in times where the economy is highly volatile, like now. Um, you get a jobs report and it'll come in, you'll say plus 50,000 jobs unexpectedly. And then the second report that comes out says, uh, actually only about 5,000 jobs were added. So that was in line with expectations, but now that's two, three months after the fact. So, so I actually, when I look at these reports, I actually do go back and I look at the revisions and I start trying to understand the sort of the, the, the path of the economy, not just on the first set uh, of numbers, but sort of how those numbers have evolved over time in recent history. And that's sort of how I level set what I sort of what I really expect the jobs report to be. Um, unfortunately, with this new report coming out today, I haven't had the time yet to go back and sort of update my priors about where I think this is going to land post revisions. Talk about that real quick, though, because people know the unexpectedly part and we make a joke of it. I already talked about it the revisions confuse folks because like, well, why is there a revision? Well, that's because the data, you know, more data comes in. It's a perspective thing, uh-huh. but you know, just explain that for the average person, why there's a revisions, why they ought to matter, why they don't seem to really matter. And why that headline comes off that first report anyway, even when the revision for last month was something like 50,000 jobs. So, so it's like this and I'm going to do a really simple example. Um, you get 70% of your data in, and your boss wants to wants you to have wants you to have a report by the end of the week. You can't wait for the other thirty percent to come in. Your boss said, "Get me the report." They're mandated to report it. You have to do it. So you make your best guess about what that thirty percent outstanding is. 
flash forward another month, you've gotten that other 30%. That data has come in. So now you're going to use the real data and not your estimated data based on your past priors, your past beliefs. Um, and that's the reason why there's a revision. What I think would be really helpful when we talk about jobs numbers is a less of a focus on the baseline average estimate gain or loss. So we say the economy added 260,000 jobs. I'd like to hear the report say the economy has added between 200,000 and 320,000 jobs in the last year. And, that, and the journalist should lead with that, you know, you know, and, and sure, of course, CNN could go, the economy's added at least 200,000 jobs and Fox could go, the economy's added at most 300,000 jobs. You know, I mean, the museum will still play with that, but I think for f folks can handle ranges. I mean, we get that. People play fantasy sports, we get ranges. So I think that would be a little bit better of reporting to, to, to level set with people the uncertainty. You know, we try to do that with political reporting. We say, you know, the generic ballot is the Republicans are up by two percentage points with a margin of error of 3%. Okay. So it might be even, Stephen, but odds are the Republicans got a little bit of a lead. Cool. You know, that's understandable, I think. And so I, I wish that we would have sort of that sort of reporting going on. I think that would help. Because then if you tell me, like, it's also a good sanity check. If you tell me we added between 200 and 320,000 jobs, and you revise that, you say, ah, yep, it was 245,000. Well, that's, that's a really good check on what you told me the last month. Because you're in that range, it makes sense. If you told me 200,000 or 320,000, oh, we added 10,000 jobs. Something wrong with your forecast. Stephen Popovnik with us. Speaking of things wrong with your forecast, I think we're talking about this labor situation wrong, not in total, but in part. I think, why is it, and I know kind of the answer, but I want the economic tilt on this, and you've also been an employee of various things. You have a diverse background, which is good for an economist because a lot of those folks don't. They go to school and they become economists. I'm not knocking them, it's just what it is. But you, you've been an employee that's gotten kicked around a little bit, right? Uh, I've had a few I, jobs in my life. I think when we're talking about this current labor situation, people are having a hard time getting their heads around why we have a labor shortage with low unemployment. I don't think we talk about the management structure. I don't think we talk about the corporate structure. I don't talk, think we talk about leadership. And I don't think we talk about the fact that we told most workers, especially service-side workers, exactly what we thought about them in COVID. And now we want to be all shocked and shaken that they believe us when we told them what we thought about them. And then we wonder why they're getting picky about their jobs. I think that's part of this story that everybody's not talking about. I think that's a huge part of this because it sure does explain, not all, it explains a lot of those, well, that's why they're moving between jobs and jobs. That's why they're openly mobile. And that's why the real low-end jobs, a lot of them are deciding to sit home instead of working a job that would be marginally, um, how do I phrase this in an economic way, but 
look, you got to make a certain amount of money to make it worthwhile to go to work because it's not free to get back and forth to work and commute and do all those sorts of things and have childcare and everything else. You get on the margins. A lot of those people just stay home because it's not worth it to them to work. I think that's something that's being way under discussed. Yeah. I mean, look, we shut down the economy for a significant portion of 2020, 2021. Uh, retail workers and service workers, you know, had to deal with, you know, uh, a lot of uncertainty with the virus while they still had to work. Right. So, so, and then we saw just how much of our economy just runs on that. And, and they are sort of the forgotten part. Um, maybe forgotten is not the wrong word, but overlooked. Um, and so, yeah. And then they're, switching now jobs they're they're wanting better pay and benefits we we've talked about the uh the popeyes sort of you know job ads and what they're trying to do you know we've talked about factories trying to find different schedules so they can get the working moms back in for six hours a day um because they're desperate for labor and now they're having to do something to make themselves attractive um it's good in the sense that labor has more power on that and you know there's it's good that white collar workers are able to say, do we really need to be going into the office two hours, you know, commuting a day for a lot of this stuff? No, you, you, you don't. Um, management's gotten shaken up because management has to react to the changing environment. You know, labor's demanding more, but it's also been shown that past management practices maybe weren't really necessary or they really should have like changed with the modern times. Um, you know, I also think it explains a lot about our political culture. And I think it, I think you know the, the how retail and service sector workers are are treated, um, you know, and, and so I think it also explains a lot of sort of the the angst and the the disconnect that folks have with their local leaders and, and what they're really doing. So we're still working on understanding how the how the I would call it the 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 consumer facing side of the of the economy uh, will be like in, in the future. Um, but you know, it, it definitely seems like workers at that level are pushing and holding out, uh, for more benefits. And I think it was shown that they kind of, they kind of need them. Stephen Popovnik with us. I'm going to throw you another Popovnik. topic, topic, <laughs> whatever. Shut up. <laughs> You'll take your name and you like it. Work the gimmick, son. Uh, Stephen Popovnik with us. Uh, we're having we are having pronunciation issues, but that's okay. We're a little punch drunk because we're trying to deal with this election and an economy. We don't get paid enough for this, my friend. Um, I want to talk about po- the money and politics for a second. Sure, okay. Out of my wheelhouse. Sounds good. Total spending on the election for 2012 was about seven billion dollars. 2016 total spending was right around seven to eight billion dollars. The 2018 midterm, this is a midterm, not in a not a presidential year, was $5.7 billion. The 2020 election was somewhere around $14.4 billion. Now, as an economist, y'all divide sectors of the economy up by billions. And of course, you know, like, you know, ag is in the trillions and technology is in the trillions and so on and forth. If I told you there was a sector of the economy that was growing at that rate and was now worth $14 billion, there would be people covering that sector of the economy. But because it's politics, we just lump it under politics. This is a huge chunk of our economy now. It touches on media. It touches on job. That's a job creator because all these we have a professional political class now. 
this is its own economic sector in America when you start talking about 14 billion for an election, right? That's a big number. It's also, I would say it's a sector where I think the lines are blurred and where the sector begins and where the sector ends. So if this is a sector, how would you cover it differently? Taking the politics out of just say, okay, I've got this, I've just gotten hired by, you know, Acme Economic Magazine. And my beat is the politics sector, this $14 billion industry. How do you cover that a little differently than just politics? Because we don't put those two things together. But how our politics is presented, how campaigns are run, follow the money, man. The money I mean, tells you a lot about it. I, what I would think about it is what what's the ROI of these activities, Explain right? The acronym. Sorry. What's the return on investment of these activities, right? So if you're ding, a party, ding, 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 ding. you get the political control, you have control over the purse. You can put spending to where you want it to go relatively more. Democrats will prioritize one sector or one group. Republicans will prioritize something else. Maybe they'll both prioritize the, the same people in the same group. Um, but, you know, that, that money that is spent on politics is to gain access to the levers of power. And what are you doing with those levers of power? So, Here's the problem with the return on investment metric. It really works great when we talk about like defense spending. You know, are you getting the new military base in your district? Are you getting this or getting that? Right. That that makes sense. When you talk about the fact that many voters are not um, motivated at the ballot box by um, an econ issue, but a social issue, whether that be Black Lives Matter or be pro-life issues um how do you value how do you calculate return on investment there uh that's a that's a little bit difficult but i mean that that is why the money's being spent that is why it's there to me that is an important perspective on our politics that it is a business it's a business for the media. It's a business for the candidates. It's a business for the staffers. It's a business for folks like you and me that commentate on it and do, you know, alternate media. Not that we're making very much money on it. I make we're available. <laughs> DMs open. We take PayPal. But the point is, this thing is an ecosystem. And, uh, the, and the buzzwords and the parties and the candidates and the personalities and the policy issues are one part of it. But there's this whole ecosystem underneath it. And if you don't understand the ecosystem and you just look at those top line items, I think you don't have a perspective of what the entire beast is. And then, look, as I said, the lines are blurred. Where does Twitter fit in all of this? Right. I mean, I don't think that's well, right be, now. It's driving all of it because everybody's lost their minds. But 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 I like when you told me those figures of how much money is being spent. Right. Maybe you got you grabbed some money that was being spent on Twitter ads. But. Twitter itself is driving a lot. Facebook itself is driving a lot. What proportion of Facebook is politics? What proportion of Twitter is politics? What proportion of YouTube is politics? Uh, what, you know, like the media that, that we consume, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult to define sort of line of, of like how much of that should really be talking about the political economy sector is going to be in that political economy sector. But, it, but it's big, it drives things. And look, at the end of the day, uh, my friend, uh, my friend David, um, has a saying: economics is all about incentives. That's all you need to know. Follow the incentives, and you'll see how people will behave. Yeah. And if you want to know why people are spending a lot of money in politics, 
follow the incentives. I think this is a very important way to look at politics. You know, follow the money almost never lets you down because, you know, it was the old saying, you know, your money's where your heart is. Following the money usually gets you close to the truth. Not always, but it'll get you close. Well, it's, and, it's more of the one say is don't believe the words, believe the actions. Yep. Money, money talks. Other things walk, but we got to be FCC compliant here. Stephen Poppick joining us. One, one more thought on this before we let you go, because I, I love talking about this because, again, economics is stats and figures, but it's practical application, really. When you think about it, where's money moving? You know, there's metrics in economics about, you know, the dynamicism of money. How's it moving? How fast it, the velocity of money through the economy, these things. Should we look at it that way also in things like personal finance, debt, political spending even? It's not just the money's moving. It's how it's moving, how fast it's moving, rates of growth. This is all healthy ways to look at how our money's moving because economics is bigger than just consumer spending now. Economics touches almost everything, doesn't it? I mean, well, economics is, is spending, it is investment, it is debt. Um, it is the interplay between people. Um, I think a lot of people forget or do not know that Adam Smith, often thought of as the father of modern economics, because he wrote some book called Wealth of Nations. He's actually famous at the time that he was living for a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, not The Wealth of Nations. Uh, and that book was all about how we behave towards each other, how we relate, how we build capital, not machinery capital, but interpersonal capital by working with each other. That was then later taken by Gary Becker and created a whole field of econ called human capital where we could sort of measure like, what is the value of getting an education? Uh, what is the value of marrying someone who happens to like NASCAR just like you like NASCAR? Yeah, there's a value there. Um, Ever wonder why those dating sites have algorithms to match with people? Yeah, part of that's informed by our work. Um, you know, so I, I guess econ, econ touches a lot more than, than just dollars and cents. But I, I think at the end of the day, let's 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 just think about what we are incentivizing with our choices. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Stephen Poppick. A uh, couple quick hits for you before we let you go here. Um, just kind of your opinions on these. Your learned but informed opinion on a few things. Interest rates. Are they going? We just had a pretty good jump. Are they going to continue to raise interest rates? Or are we done for now? I mean, we're going to still see interest rates rising. Um, the debate's really about, is it going to be another 75 basis point uh, change, which is a fairly big change if we look at how the historically how the Fed's made changes, or if we're going to start dropping down to 50 basis points. Powell signaled to expect the latter. Let's say uh, Congress, um, the change of Congress, will this have a discernible notice? We, when mean, we get still, the new Congress seated in January, is it going to move the economic numbers one way or the I other? Think, I, think, I think there probably will be some rebalancing between sectors of the economy. But, you know, remember, the federal budget really comes up once a year, and that tends to be around August, September is when that big push happens. So the federal budget's sort of baked right now, except for special things. Unemployment number, are we going to start seeing a balance between it and the labor shortage, or do you think we keep bumping along kind of where we're at for the foreseeable future? I think over the next year, I mean, we should see a slight uptick in the unemployment rate. That just seems the most obvious thing because we've been running at an unemployment rate that most economists are still shocked could be an, an, un, or, or an unemployment rate that, that we would have an economy sustaining it. Yet we keep adding jobs. So the unemployment rate has stayed pretty constant around 3.5% with the most commonly used metric. Um, I think that we could possibly see a move up, but we're not talking maybe a material difference, right? You know, in the sense of we go from 3.5 to 3.8. Consensus forecast puts it around 3.8, 4.2 at the end of next year. Next GDP number. Who the hell knows? <laughs> uh, and it's really, really hard to, to, to finagle that. I, I would say it's probably going to be a positive number, but maybe because we had an, a better than expected third quarter, we probably have a worse than expected, but not negative fourth quarter. The uh, Biden administration and Democratic allies are wearing people out with this chart about global inflation. Uh, part of the story there is when you look at all the developed countries, the, especially, you know, the Western countries that are suffering inflation, our eight-ish percent, which it's bouncing around a little bit, but let's just round it off to eight for conversational cool. purposes. Our 8% inflation rate actually looks pretty good compared to some other countries, especially Turkey, who's pushing 80 right now. Um, does the global inflation crisis affect, hurt, or help our own inflation crisis? Well, I mean, I think that depends on your pers perspective and what you're intending on doing. If you're trying to buy Turkish rugs, maybe that helps you a little bit. Um because our, our dollar is worth more. If you're trying to take a vacation to anywhere in Europe, uh, the dollar is incredibly strong. So your dollar goes further in Europe right now. But then if you're trying to buy goods that come in from overseas to sell to the American market, prices are going up for those goods and they're coming in. I mean, you know, buy them and so like goods are more, more relatively can will still be more expensive, even if the dollar has a little bit of strength. So really just depends on where you are in the perspective. Um, I think it doesn't help our economy get back to a lower inflation rate. I mean, Europe's screaming about some of the stuff that we're doing because Biden is trying to reduce the inflation rate here. The Fed's trying to reduce the inflation rate here. And the European Central Bank is screaming at Jerome Powell to, hey, let's coordinate because you're pushing prices up for us. Well, last I checked, Jerome Powell doesn't work for 
the European Central Bank. He works for the Federal Reserve of the United States of America. And, and that's they don't a have coordination an cycle starting yeah. up here for and, the president either. And this is a coordination issue. Could we have a better could we have a uh, an inflation, you know, change that would be better, would be reduced faster if everybody coordinated? Yes. But this is a game. Let's run some game theory and look at a little game called the prisoner's dilemma. Sort of where we are. Interesting, interesting. All right. Here, here's your nice juicy one you can sink your teeth into a little bit. Give me the economic bomb that could go off between now and the first of the year. There's a couple things floating out there. There's some news stories out there. What's something that could be bad for the economy? And then I'm going to follow that up with something that could be good for the economy too. But what's a bomb that there may be a landmine out there laying in wait? I mean, the biggest one that comes to my mind immediately is an escalation in the type of conflict that's going on in the Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. If it would to spread or to get worse, uh, who knows what Russia's going to do? I think that's a good one. Um, I'm watching the railroad situation right now. Mm -hmm. That's one that could be bad. I'm also watching the fuel shortage issues because it's not just diesel fuel. That's the one getting headlined. But diesel fuel and heating oil fuel are fine together. Those two I things mean, are especially linked. Especially out there, keep an eye on that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean that, that's a good one, especially in Europe right now. They're they're going to have to get off of Russian gas. We should have built five more LNG plants on the east we coast. Should have, we we should have built 15 more nuclear plants in the last 20 years, but, you know, save the environment. Yeah, Wu-Tang, right? Uh, all right, last one. Um, politically, when we have a presidential election, which is going to start five minutes after we're done with this, even though we're going to have some runoffs, and what, about started. 10 days of election? Yeah. Correction, it's already started. I know Pence is already staffed up. Trump's the rumors are already out. Trump's going to announce on basically in a week and a half or so. What does a presidential election do to the economy normally? Because we're not going to have a normal presidential election, I don't think. Is it something that could really bounce around the economy a little bit? It could certainly do things for things like confidence and what such. But if we have a really ugly presidential campaign, what does that do to the economy? Okay, so first, if we have a really ugly presidential campaign, we're going to have a really ugly presidential campaign. I'm I trying mean, to be optimistic here, economist. I'm realistic. Always will be. So what does it do? So That's I think about ultimate, your wrestling. ultimately, yeah, whatever. It's real to me, damn it. Um, so <laughs> I, I broke him. I broke him. <laughs> um, so um, here, here's, here, here's what I would say on that. Uh, finally pulled a Sami Zayn. If you get that reference, yeah, you know how that works. Um, the, the how the economy reacts to a political change is going to depend on the shock of that political change. If we go in to uh, just just an example, let's go into Biden Trump 2.0, and everything is telling us that Biden's going to win a second term, and then Trump wins. That would have a big change because that would be a dramatic change from expectations. The economy. And investment activities in the economy function on future-looking expectations. That's why things often take time to, you know, when we talk about, oh, this report just happened, that's already been baked in. We all, you know, companies already have figured that out, they're already making plans. So, you know, to the extent that it looks like we have a great certainty on where the election's going to go, and we get a shock, that would change it. If the economy is very, if the, if the election's very uncertain, we look like we're 50-50 and it doesn't look like any side has any big advantage, then there's going to be a lot of, of sort of hedging that's going on in the economy. And that's sort of how, you know, 
by, by business leaders, right? So, so again, we can't really say for certain how the economy is gonna gonna react to the political election, but it's gonna function on 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 the degree to which the outcome of the election was predicted or not. My yeah. take. Stephen Pavic, always great stuff. I love throwing you stuff that's a little bit of curveballs because your reactions are great. We're going to do this roundtable on wrestling one of these days, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we come back, especially with all the moving and shaking you got going on in your life. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MotoEconomist, and in two weeks, you can pick up an Economist magazine and read a little bit about the mortgage market uh, with yours truly having a few quotes in it. So I appreciate the time being on here as always, Andrew. It's always a great time talking to you. That's big doings, man. Congratulations. Good to see you coming up in the world. Hope we don't lose you to a better, uh, bigger, better show that pays better. So until then. Uh, I like you. I'll stick around. <laughs> Talk soon, brother. Thank you for the time. Bye. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.